Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's the joke. How do you catch a unique rabbit? I don't know. You meek up on it. And then how do you catch a tame rabbit? Still don't know. Tame way, you meek up on it. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Suze Slezak of Mexo-American folk band David Wax Museum. Two jokes. Two jokes, in fact. That'll help break the ice. We'll hear more from them later. Also, we'll speak with actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's in a film you probably heard of called The Dark Knight Rises and the new movie Premium Rush. Plus, a new tune from psych popper Ariel Pink. Novelist Jonathan Evison makes us think twice about friending him on Facebook. And actress and author Molly Ringwald is here with etiquette tips. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Human rights groups are denouncing the sentence handed down to members of the Russian feminist punk band Pussy Riot. Hurricane Isaac is threatening to crash the Republican National Convention in Tampa, Florida. Republican Todd Akin is now apologizing for the comments that aired yesterday. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Jessica Cohen. She is the editor-in-chief of Jezebel, a women's culture website. Jessica, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the Class of 2016 Mindset List. Mm. All right. What is a mindset list? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to know they have minds. (laughs) Beloit College, small liberal arts school in Wisconsin, every year they release this list about the mindset of their incoming freshmen. And these kids were born in 1994. Oh, man. I know. Yeah, that's frightening. So the way they see the world and what they understand to be just the way things are is very different from someone who was born in even the late 80s. I refuse to believe that, but give us an example. (laughs) Um, One that really got to me was this generation will never know Robert De Niro as a real actor. They will only know him as the dad from Meet the Fockers. Ah, this, that, yes, not the guy from Taxi Driver, exactly. the guy who is not mean the guy to ben from Stiller. Goodfellas. It's tragic. <laughs> not Godfather Two. No, and also they have never known tan M and M's. Blue's normal to them. So they're kind of like Van Halen. The tan M and M's have been removed for them. Yes, right? actually. <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly I often like say that. that this generation is like Van Halen. No, I don't. (laughs) Any others? You know, some weren't so bad. Some were actually kind of good. Um, The whole trope of the dumb, ditzy blonde in entertainment has really been phased out, so they're not really familiar with that Mm -hmm. for them. For better or for worse, now it's the two dumb guys. Hey. Dumb. Uh-oh. Wait a yeah. second. And thus our show. Turn about is fair play, guys. <laughs> fair is fair. That's why we're so popular among the young. I've enjoyed my last appearance here. Thank you. <laughs> Man, Jessica Cohen, thanks for the small talk and for making us feel old. And now, <laughs> thankfully, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our world-famous history lesson blended with booze. Kind of a margarita made of the past. Uh, Refreshing. Yeah. We start, as always, with the history. This week, back in 1935, a concert in Los Angeles changed American popular music. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It was 1935, and Benny Goodman's career was starting to swing. He'd been a star jazz clarinetist for years, but now he was the leader of his own big band. They even had a weekly gig in New York City, playing on a national radio show called Let's Dance. 
Although, admittedly, the band performed after midnight when the radio audience was mostly, well, asleep. Regardless, now Benny needed new tunes to play every week, and he needed to sound different than other bands on the show. So he made a bold decision to hire musical pioneers like Fletcher Henderson to write him arrangements in the super rhythmic style called Hot Swing. Hipsters had dug that sound for years, but mainstream audiences were into milder, so-called sweet dance music. They didn't exactly embrace Benny's new sound. His band's first cross-country tour was a disaster. In Denver, audiences complained about the, quote, noise and demanded refunds. At another gig, the band played behind chicken wire while the displeased crowd hurled whiskey bottles at them. Dejected, Benny figured he'd finish the tour, then give up band leading forever. But then, a miracle. At LA's Palomar Ballroom, the last stop of the tour, the audience went nuts for the hot swing numbers. The band's three-week engagement was extended to six. Suddenly, Benny's face was on the cover of every music mag in the country. It's widely considered the gig that launched the swing era. But why did it happen in LA? Benny chalked it up to the three-hour time difference between East Coast and West. See, in LA, his sets on Let's Dance aired at the prime time of 9.30 instead of after midnight. So Angelinos had actually been awake to hear Benny's hot swing and to fall in love with it. The rest of the country soon caught on. For the next 10 years, swing was the most popular music in America. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Lindsay Moet. She is the bartender at the R Bar in Los Angeles, right down the street from where the Palomar Ballroom used to sit. And Lindsay, you heard the history. What cocktail did this story inspire you to make? We decided to make something called the Hep Benny. Hep being what everybody used to use as a word for sort of hip or cool or something like that. And Benny for good Mr. Benny that started the swing. Benny Goodman, I like it. I've always loved the word hep. I don't know why everyone switched to hip. I sat here yesterday going through a bunch of the old slang and stuff is repeating now that you don't think people used to say and then there's these great words that sort of just disappeared. Well, it's interesting. The way hipsterism works, I think, the more obscure the better. So maybe the real hip people are saying hep and we didn't even know. Probably. I'm just not that (laughs) hip. So what's in in your drink? Um, We decided to stick with local LA stuff and then incorporate fun, poppy stuff of the swing and the jazz and jitterbug and everything that was going on back then. Okay. So we started with watermelon grown in Southern California. So we got a little watermelon juice? It's one ounce of fresh watermelon puree. Okay. I added a telecherry pepper simple syrup, one ounce. What is a telecherry pepper? Telecherry pepper is a blend of peppercorns, black peppercorns, red peppercorns, white peppercorns, and green peppercorns. Oh, fun. Okay. What else are you going to add to this drink? We're going to add one ounce of Bombay Sapphire Gin. You're going to take a shaker, add some ice to it, and shake that in the shaker just until it's cold. Strain that into an 8-ounce champagne flute Mm -hmm. and top that with the 2 ounces of champagne. And the champagne is there to give it a swing-era feel, right? Yeah, they were using it for a lot of the dinners that they had at the Palomar Ballroom. It seemed so opulent in a time when people didn't really have too much. Well, it sounds delicious. Uh, So, Leslie, are you interested in swing music? We studied it a bit in school. Really? Sure. Was smoking and drinking hooch also part of the curriculum? It was part of the course. How could (laughs) you not? 
So Rico, another swing era slang term, according to Lindsay, yeah. was the bomb. The bomb? Yeah, which of course means phenomenal or great. Yeah. And it's a phrase I thought came from 90s hip hop, you know, duh bomb. Of course. But apparently it originated from swing music. That is fascinating. Also, yeah. a lot of people don't know this. Uh, Benny Goodman invented the giant clock necklace. That's <laughs> that true. Is, that is fascinating. Yeah. He was an original. Folks, to find all of our cocktail recipes, you can swing by our website. Oh, man. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, we have a group of interesting persons, the members of David Wax Museum. That's not a place, it's a band. Their new album, Knock Knock Get Up, comes out September 4th. Here they are to tell us about an odd instrument they use and to list some others. Hi, my name's Greg Glassman. I'm Suze Slezak. I'm David Wax, and we are David Wax Museum. We are a Mexo-Americana band from Massachusetts. And if you've never seen a Mexo-Americana band, you might not know this instrument that I play called Quijada del Burro, a donkey jawbone. And I've got it right here. I'll give you a little example of it. So here's our list of three bands that also use some pretty unusual instruments. One of my favorite bands is a band called The Low Anthem. They kind of specialize in lots of weird instruments, but the one that particularly excites me is the pump organ. These old antique reed organs that you have to pump with your feet. It breathes with the bellows, and it's creaky and is this woody, corky, layer of sound underneath their songs. Peter was a mighty fine man. Tom Waits has used the pump organ before, uh, Neil Young, but I think that the pump organ in the low anthem is such a central element of the sound. These instruments have a long history of, of being used for church singing. I think the Low Anthems pump organ was used in World War I by an army chaplain in France. We recently played in an old church in a cemetery in Keene, New Hampshire, and we decided to bring it along with us for that gig. It seemed like an appropriate instrument to play in a cemetery. It was an amazing show, and, and mostly because of that pump organ. Number two would be a mutual friend of ours, a musician in Boston, Massachusetts, named Eric Royer. His strange instrument would be the guitar machine that he designed and built himself. All sorts of pulleys and cables on this thing. With his left foot, he is hitting pedals that move picks that actually strum the electric bass and the guitar. And on the right foot, six pedals operate clamps on the neck of the bass and the guitar. So with his left foot and his right foot, he's playing electric bass, acoustic guitar, banjo, singing, and in a split second, he'll switch to dobro while he's still maintaining bass and guitar. It's an incredible thing to see. I forgot to mention one, one element. He's also got a doll named Polly, which is this ragtag doll on a string. So every time he's operating the pedals, it's kind of like attached to the top of her head. So she's kind of dangling like an insane marionette as all this cacophony is going on. So. I would name Eric Royer as an instrument unto himself. The third band that plays crazy instruments, and you might not be surprised that it's my favorite, is a band called the Carolina Chocolate Drops. 
They do African-American old-time string music as well as many other styles. Um, they play the bones, which are these two rib bones, I think from a cow, and you hold two in each hand, so you have four rib bones, and you clack them together, and they dance around with them, and they make this amazing tap dance, clickety-clack sound. And um, on special moments when we were also playing with them, I pull my jawbone out, and we have bone-against-bone bone competitions. <laughs> Not really competitions, but... Um, uh, Jams, bone jams, you might say. In general, it's e- pretty easy to travel with a donkey jawbone. The only trouble is customs sometimes, because it is an animal product, so I sometimes lie about that. They might think it's made out of plastic, so I get through with it. One, two, three, four. Greg Glassman, Sue Slezak, and David Wax of the band David Wax Museum. Their album Knock Knock Get Up comes out September 4th. The song you're hearing was taped live in our studio, and you can hear the whole thing at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And we're going to take a quick break. When we return, Molly Ringwald gives us etiquette tips, and novelist Jonathan Evison proves he needs some. All that when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, Rico learns the science of sleep, and movie star Joseph Gordon-Levitt waxes poetic. Chansons des escargots qui vont à l'enterrement. In French. Yeah, he says some English stuff as well. It's true. I should say. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is Molly Ringwald. She was, of course, the star of some of the most beloved teen movies of the 80s. She is also a regular on the TV drama The Secret Life of the American Teenager. Her new book of fiction, When It Happens to You, just came out. And Molly, welcome back to this program. Thank you. It is great to have you. Uh, It's good to be back. Sweet. People expect... You guys are so happy to be here. (laughs) We are. (laughs) Let's not answer any questions. Let's just revel in our togetherness. Yes, exactly. Uh, People expecting kind of breezy tales about young adults are going to be sorely disappointed by this book. I really loved it, though. Thank you. It's a series of kind of interconnected short stories, many about the difficulties of family relationships. You have said the main theme is betrayal. Mm -hmm. Why focus on that? Well, originally, I just I wanted to think of something that connects us all. And betrayal is just one of those things. You you can't say that you have never been betrayed or that you haven't betrayed someone or yourself. Yikes. If you do, you're lying. <laughs> you're betraying yourself if you say that. <laughs> exactly. I felt like it was just this very rich, universal subject. But was there a seed that led you to pick betrayal specifically? Because, I mean, you know, something that also binds us all is love. <laughs> but mm-hmm. you went with betrayal. Yeah. Do you want to read about love? <laughs> yeah, and and there is a lot of love in in the book. That's I think true. I, I think it's impossible really to be betrayed by somebody really that you don't love. Yeah. And I think I even say that at one point, like the quality of the betrayal is dependent upon the amount of love for the person that you're betrayed by. That's true. Um, that explains you know, a lot about me and Brendan's relationship. <laughs> That's true. That's why I'm never hurt when Rico betrays me. <laughs> <laughs> I love lost. Um, so we have some questions. If you're willing to help us, absolutely. Help our 
Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. The first one comes from Ashley. She's from Kalamazoo. Is it rude to ignore a person who is fishing for compliments? I'm sick of telling my friend she is beautiful, skinny, etc. three times a day. <laughs> is it rude? I don't think it's rude, but you know, if I if I were her, I would I would make it into a game. Okay, also. <laughs> I would just make her just get more explicit. You know, I don't want to just hand it to her. Just ah. like make her keep fishing. See how far she'll go. I see. What exactly is like, wrong with you in your mind? Yeah. Is that really messed up? No, I like it. You need to do something because you're you're really helping them as a friend. Like they, right. they really shouldn't be so narcissistic. Yeah, you need to sort of retrain them a little bit. There's actually a moment in the book where you're the uh, character is putting her child to sleep. And the game yes. is that the child has to come up with the most horrible thing that could happen to her. Yeah, it's basically that the child is is saying, you know, how much do you love me? But it is a game. Like, would you love me if I if I turned into a spider? Or would you love me yes. if my face froze like this? And of course, the answer is always yes. I would love you no matter what. So kind of do that with your friend. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but a little more f***ed up. <laughs> but, you All know, right. it's different. If I, th- I feel like if it's your child and they ask you that, then you the answer is always yes. Sure. But yes. if it's your friend and she's saying, you know, do I look fat in these jeans? You know, like you only get one of those a week, I <laughs> yeah. think. And that's it. All right. Here's Leanne in L.A. My grade schooler's best buddy, she writes, is not who I'd have chosen for her. I grin and bear it and try not to butt in, but now the mother is trying to escalate our friendship by inviting me to do kid-related and non-kid things. And our differences go beyond just parenting techniques. How should I respond to this woman I will have to see five days a week for the next several years? (laughs) Wow. Welcome to the club. Yeah, this is a tough one. I've heard this from many people. It's hard. You know, it's I was really lucky. My my daughter made friends with a girl. I wrote about this in my first book. They were in preschool and it, they were just instant friends. And wow. fortunately, I really like her mom. Like yeah. we're best friends now. Okay. But they moved away and then my daughter <sighs> has made other friends. <laughs> and it's not quite the same love affair. Don't name names. Yeah. But at the same time, you just sort of have to be an adult and say we don't have to be best friends. But that's what's so funny about it, right? You're bringing up a kid and yet suddenly you're back in that kid position of like oh, yeah. I want to <laughs> hang out with him. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. He smells. He smells funny. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do when this woman comes over with her kid and you don't want to be your best friend. I think it's just one of those situations where you just say, hey, take the time to do what you want. Go get a mani-pedi. I I got this one. Just sound like you're a really great, generous person. There you go, Leanne. There's some guidance. Um, Here's a question from JR. I mentor a teenager who's very into, how do I say this, a dark aesthetic. Mm. Wears all black, hair slung low over his eyes, likes metal music, etc. He's a great kid, but I feel like his look gives some people, job hires for instance, the wrong impression should I mention this to him? I don't want to make him feel self-conscious. Make him self-conscious. <laughs> really? Does this outfit make me look dark? Yes, it does. <laughs> I think you need to be honest. I think kids need to be aware that they are sending a message. Yeah. You know, if you decide to tattoo a teardrop underneath your eye, (laughs) they have to realize that that is going to give people pause. If you are a true mentor, you have to be honest in that way and just say, you can do this. Like, you can like this, but you have to realize that when you go looking for a job, this may turn some people off. Unless you're you're... applying for a job at a renaissance Right. (laughs) I can imagine people all over America, though, saying, this is the advice from the girl in Pretty in Pink who dressed the way she wanted (laughs) and was so awesome. Yeah, but, you know, even in that final scene, the dress didn't look that crazy. No, that's true. It it looked pretty hideous. (laughs) 
Only you know? in retrospect. No, I, I, I didn't like it at the time. I remember having these conversations with the costume designer. Really? And, yeah. Really? And, and in our conversations, it sounded awesome. <laughs> it sounded so cool. And then I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, this this is it? This is what we were talking no. about? I think, you know? uh, if anything, John Cryer got the short end of the stick with the outfits. Oh, dressed he... like Roy Orbison or something. Oh, he looks so cute. Oh, come on. Oh, he oh, looks and, so adorable. And you didn't, please. <laughs> anyway. But you know, uh, actually, since we're on the subject, I, did, I wanted to ask you, you've been playing on TV the mother of a teenager for years now. Your writing is very much about the complexities of being adult. Mm -hmm. I feel like that idea of you as primarily a teen star is maybe fading. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure you're relieved, but I mean, is there any sense of of sadness that that kind of forever young phase of your life is maybe ending? It feels great. (laughs) Come on, Rico. You knew that was coming. You know, it's weird. It's true. You would think it would be wonderful to be young forever, but that's a little bit like kind of being a vampire, you know? (laughs) I mean, we know that's not popular. You can make bank off that. No, I mean, yeah. y- you do want to evolve and change. And yeah, I'm I'm happy to have grown up. So does this mean you're not going to split a case of beer with Rico and I in the woods after this? <laughs> well. Because his brother it, got it. Got us a case. If totally. you ask really nicely, I might consider it. All right. <laughs> Molly Ringwald, her new book of short fiction is called When It Happens to You. Molly, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. My pleasure. Thank you for not asking me to bark again. <laughs> We've got that on tape. We'll just run it after we say goodbye to you. You'll just run it. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. And folks, just to explain for those new to the show, last time Molly was our guest, she demonstrated a secret ability. Let's go to the tape. I can bark like a dog incredibly realistically. That was good, right? Never gets old. Yeah. You can hear Molly explain why she developed that talent at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org that's also where you can email us your etiquette questions and now time to eavesdrop writer Jonathan Evison's last novel West of Here garnered several awards and was a New York Times bestseller his new book comes out this week today we overhear him read an excerpt Hi, my name is Jonathan Evison. My third novel, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving, comes out this week. It's the story of Ben, a stay-at-home father whose wife has left him. He's basically, in a period of his life, he's come to refer to as the blur, just trying to inch his way back to uh, some semblance of humanity. Here's Ben trying to make himself feel better by eavesdropping on his estranged wife in a chapter called Profiles. According to Janet's Facebook, she's currently cooking eggplant parmesan and listening to John Prine. Her networks are Portland, Oregon and Oregon Metro Zoo. Her status is in a relationship, though it should say married because I still haven't signed the papers. Somebody named Jim Sunderland has tagged her in a note. Yesterday, Janet lit a candle that smelled like orange blossoms. She liked Jim Sunderland's status update. She became a fan of Jane Goodall. She wrote on Jim Sunderland's wall, and Jim wrote back, You're on, but only if I get a head start. Who the hell is Jim Sunderland? He sounds like a real estate agent. All I know at this point is that he wears glasses and has good teeth, and he looks a few years older than me. He's verging on handsome, I guess, in a beady-eyed way. But he looks like an NPR listener. He looks like he'd bore you at a party. 
I can just tell he's one of those laid-back people with hidden agendas. A little dweeb who preys on vulnerable women. I want to write on his wall, you, Jim, you little phony. But I don't. Instead, I friend him. And what will Jim Sunderland think of me when he views my profile? Jim will see that I have no status, no network, and that I haven't cooked anything or lit any scented candles in months. He'll see that nobody writes on my wall except my best friend Forrest, who posts things like, You okay? Give me a call. And when are you going to update your profile? Janet looks good in her most recent photos. Her smile looks as though it takes some effort, but her color is good and she's managed to maintain a certain radiance. I guess that makes her a survivor. I find pictures of Janet on the beach with Jim Sunderland and a 10-year-old kid doomed by the Jim Sunderland gene. Things are even worse than I thought. Jim is currently listening to Strauss too and drinking Sauvignon Blanc. Jesus, Janet, what were you thinking? Jim's networks are Portland, Oregon, Portland Metro Zoo, and UC Irvine alum. He's a fan of Powell's books and Coco the Gorilla. He belongs to the group This American Life. I knew it! Jim's friend confirmation arrives in concert with a message. Do I know you? No, we haven't met. I'm just a fellow Irvine alum and fan of Strauss, especially the waltzes. How long before Jim realizes we have one mutual friend, Janet, and begins making connections? How long before he realizes I don't know anything about Strauss except what I learned in three accordion lessons when I was 13? Now Jim IMs me. Go Anteaters, LOL. Have you heard Vine, Vibe, and Gesang by the Vienna Boys Choir? Haven't heard that version. I'll have to check it out. Do. It's transcendent. Transcendent? Who talks that way? What the hell is Janet doing with this guy? I see you, Jim. You're not fooling me with your Bordeaux wines and your boys' choirs. And if Janet were awake enough to see you through the splintered glass of her broken life, she'd recognize you too. you, Jim, I type, you little But I don't have the guts to post it. Author Jonathan Evison reading from his new novel, The Revised Fundamentals of Caregiving. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. You can creepily monitor us at facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. And now, time for Chattering Class. This is where we're schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. This time around, the topic is one of my favorite and least indulged in activities, sleeping. And here to tell us about it is David K. Randall. He is a senior reporter at Reuters News Service, and his new book is called Dreamland, The Strange Science of Sleep. And David, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. And first of all, you, you came to write this book when you started sleepwalking. Exactly. I, uh, I woke up one night in the hallway, searing pain in my knee. I was on my back, and I uh, quickly realized I'd sleepwalked into a wall. And what blows my mind is you went to the doctor and they basically said, you're on your own. Exactly. He said, you know, there's a lot we know about sleep, but there's a lot that we don't know. The best advice I can give you is to take it easy. <laughs> you know, it was, it was beyond medical help. So I decided to find out everything I could about sleep. What do we know and what we don't know? Why don't you start, let's talk about sleepwalking a little bit. Did you beat it, by the way? No, it's, um, they don't know what the cause is. You know, stress can bring it out. And there can also be a genetic component. And I think that's the one I have 
after I started working on the book, my dad started talking to me. He's like, oh, you know, you didn't know I was a sleepwalker too. He grew up on a farm in Kansas. And he would tell me stories about waking up in the middle of the cornfield. Oh, my God. I thought, that sounds more like an alien abduction than <laughs> sleepwalking. There's a movie opening this week, Mike Birbiglia's uh, Sleepwalk With Me, in which he talks about, you know, sleepwalking out of a window. It seems like a drastic enough problem that somebody would be working on a cure. Is anyone working on this? They know that some drugs work. Um, when you're dreaming, basically your brain paralyzes itself, so you don't act out your dreams. Right, your brain paralyzes your body. For some people, this doesn't happen. So that's why they, you know, fling lamps. You can find them bellowing show tunes in their bed. <laughs> well, that sounds like fun, anyway. Exactly. <laughs> So they, they gave him this drug, Clozenpam, and, you know, a doctor I talked with admitted, we have no idea why this works, but it does work. And there's also kind of the, the opposite is my understanding, too, where you can actually wake up at night and your brain has shut your body down, but now your brain is awake and your body is still shut down? Exactly. It's a terrifying condition. I, I haven't felt it, actually, but you wake up and you feel this pain in your chest and you just can't move. You're, you're paralyzed. And in the medieval times, they thought this was a sign that a demon called an incubus was on your chest. <laughs> well, all right. Speaking of demons, I found the chapter about various methods of getting babies and young children to sleep pretty fascinating. In researching that, what was kind of the least expected thing that you came upon? There's a big divide in kind of cultural approaches to sleep. You know, Asian countries and, and Asian Americans, too, they tend to share a bed, families share a bed more often. And European and Caucasian Americans, they tend to separate kids in, in their own rooms each night. So it's this cultural divide that also really came about in the U.S. at least, maybe in the 1910s, 1920s. That's mm -hmm. when, you know, we had all these noisy new inventions like vacuum cleaners and radios and all these other things that came into the house. And parents started to think, I need to sequester my kid in a quiet place each night. So before that, we were actually sleeping with the kids in the same bed more often. Exactly. You know, there was it was very normal for somebody to be an adult and have never slept in a bed by him or herself. So is that better or worse? What is the best way to make sure that your child goes to sleep? And I'm sure every parent in America is now leaning expectantly <laughs> towards the radio. Yeah, the basically research suggests that the best way is to do the same thing every night, a, a pattern. You know, whether you're sleeping in the same bed with your child or if not, basically the brain needs to know what's coming next, and especially young brains. It yeah. helps them to realize, I know what's expected of me. So if you're going to go to bed every night at 11, it should be every night at 11, whether it's a Friday night or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, and kind of follow that same pattern. So it really doesn't matter. I mean, there's no there's no actual method other than just make sure it's the same thing every time. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's those other things, too, which kind of prepare your, your body and, and brain for sleep, which is reduce your exposure to lights for a half hour to an hour before you're going to bed. If you just kind of do calming things, give your child a bath, all those kind of things, it eases that transition. Actually, this brings me to kind of the last thing. This is the most fascinating thing I came upon in the book, that research basically says our typical sleep, where we do it all in one big chunk between late night and early morning, is wrong. Exactly. Uh, and the reason is what's above my head right now is a light bulb. It's only been the last hundred years or so that we can make things so bright at night that our brains still think it's sunlight and stay up longer. Before the light bulb, you'd fall asleep maybe about 10 o'clock or so, mm. stay that way until about 1, maybe 1 or 2. Then you'd wake up, and it was completely normal. You expected it. You'd stay awake for about an hour, and then you'd go back to sleep. And, you know, they've done research studies where they sequestered people from electric lights. And after maybe a week or two, they started easing back into this pattern of waking up in the middle of the night and staying that wake for about an hour. And they would talk about this time in between as so blissful and relaxing. Wow. 
I'm doing that as soon as I get a job where I'm not routinely sitting in front of a computer late at night. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also very hard to do that if, I mean, I live in Brooklyn. Um, it's very hard to get away from, from bright lights. You just call the power company and have them douse all the street lights. Yeah, turn off that big Empire State Building thing, too. <laughs> so, Brendan, true story. Last okay. night after editing that piece, went to sleep. Sure enough, woke up in the middle of the night check the clock 1 a.m. Wow. Just as predicted. And did you get up and just enjoy a quiet blissful hour? I did I actually considered it. But uh then I realized I would spend the time worrying about how I wasn't getting enough sleep. <laughs> ironically. Yeah. You know. It'd be doubly ironic if you got so worried you couldn't get back to sleep after that. Yeah. That- That would be terrible. (laughs) All right, folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, a chat with Joseph Gordon-Levitt when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we speak with actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan... Hard to believe, but summer is almost over. Sadly. Yeah, it, well, it's good news for beekeepers, though, because this is the season when a lot of bee species start to become less active and their honey can be harvested. Also known as beekeepers getting stung season. <laughs> That's probably so. Bring out your EpiPens. But uh, all of this reminded me of a story that we ran a few months ago about the alcoholic beverage mead. Ah, uh, yes. Mead is, of course, made from honey. Uh, It also became super popular recently. Actually, earlier this month, people celebrated the 10th annual Mead Day. It has its own day now. I imagine lots of people drinking from iron mugs and wearing helmets for some reason. (laughs) Yes, with horns. Anyway, back in February, I spoke with a guy named William Bostwick. He co-wrote the book Beer Craft about a very unusual mead he made himself in which bees themselves play a major role. Before we got to that, though, I asked him what mead is. Mead is uh, fermented honey. If you think of wine as fermented grapes and beer as fermented grain, mead is the same thing, just with honey. Why do I always feel that mead is lumped in with beer? You know, it seems like the recent resurgence of mead comes from this kind of craft brewing craze. Yeah, I mean, you know, people are interested in, uh, I guess you could say, historical alcohol. Beer has this kind of ancient tradition. And, you know, when you start making your own beer and kind of digging back through the records, you are going to bump up against mead. That's what happened to me. Well, that's a good question. How old is mead? I mean, I I do recall it being mentioned in Beowulf, which is pretty old. Yeah, it's old. I mean, scientists dug up an urn in China that's about 9,000 years old uh, with some residue of mead in there, but it's probably much older than that. Well, this brings us to the reason we're here. You (laughs) recently wrote about an experiment you did making a, a certain kind of mead in a very old-fashioned way. Can you describe this? Yeah. I'm a beekeeper. I've made mead before, but I wanted to do something a little different. And so I made something that is called whole hive mead. Different is one way to describe this. Yeah, yeah. This is real kind of primal stuff. So the idea is you don't just boil and ferment the honey. You boil and ferment the entire hive. So bees, (sighs) wax, pollen. And the thing that really gets people is bee venom. Yeah. Actually, that bugs me less because at least bee venom is a liquid. Liquefying bee bodies is something that's... Well, they, uh, you know, we filter it, kind of. (laughs) Now, why 
Why? <laughs> That's why, my question. Why not? Well, but I mean, is it is this kind of the oldest thing you could get? I mean, did people really make this at some point? Yeah, people really made it. I mean, if you can imagine 8,000 years ago, you come across a beehive. You don't really have the technology to separate all the good stuff, the honey, from mm. all the pollen and the, and the bees and everything. <laughs> There's an old cave painting of honey hunters and they just have a long stick, and they're just knocking the hive out of the tree into a pot. That's how we see the first meads being made. So that's why I did this, um, to kind of get a taste for the first booze that anyone had access to. All right, very very quickly, what is the process of this? Do you just drop an entire beehive into boiling water? (laughs) Yeah, it's really as simple as that. My friend uh, Dan and I, who I keep bees with, uh, we heated up a big pot of water on a gas grill out back, took the frames of honeycomb out of the hive boxes and kind of scraped them off into the uh, boiling water Uh and then added some uh, champagne yeast and let it ferment. The bees must have gone insane. Uh, Yeah, yeah, there are (laughs) bees everywhere. And the idea is that you want to squash the bees uh, to extract all the venom. It's, it's, It's brutal crushing them uh, with a wooden spoon oh. like, against the side of the... <laughs> God. It's like boiling a lobster is hard enough. Yeah, but yeah, having, exactly. If you had to squash the lobster... <laughs> right, boiling 10,000 lobsters. Little langostinos, I guess. That would be hard. Right. Just, you know, yeah. morally speaking. Do you have... I mean, like, isn't there a shortage of bees out there? Is, isn't yeah, this... that's why I'm a little hesitant to talk to fellow beekeepers about it. Colony collapse disorder, as, as people are calling it, is really decimating the, the bee population. But, you know, our hive, our queen was infertile. Um, it had right. swarmed a lot during the season. It, we knew it wasn't going to last the winter. And oh, so we figured, you know, we might as well use it. put these bees to good use. Yeah, uh, we might as well use it. They died an honorable death. Noble. All right. Well, let's. I, we have some of this stuff here. You've thoughtfully put it in what looks like a laboratory plastic bottle, which is, I guess, apropos because there's poison in it. Right. So you're not allergic to bees, are you? To my knowledge, I am not. I've I've been stung twice and I did not, well, you know, uh, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> That's true. So here we go. I'm unscrewing this thing, which simply says mead. It's, it's cloudy, but it does not have, you know, bodies or anything floating in it, which is honestly what I thought might be the case. If this was served to you in a, in a wine glass, you know, you'd have a, a much different reaction. Yeah, I'd be okay with it. All right, I'm going to take a, a little sip and then see if my throat closes up just in case. Hold on. Actually, it's pretty good. It's good, right? Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> oh, man, this honestly just came to me. I swear I did not come into this interview preparing to say this, but it does have a little sting to it. <laughs> At the end, after it goes down, it has a little bit of... There is. Is that is that really like the I guess acid or whatever of the of the venom going on or is it just that it's I, very sweet? You know I don't know. Uh, it's so rare. I found one other person in the country who's made mead this way, so I don't really know what is doing what. I imagine the venom's got to do something, and it is pretty sweet still. It's really actually quite good, and it's not. I thought it might be like maybe thicker or syrupier, but it's actually you know it's kind of a wine texture. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not dying, and it's tasty. <laughs> Success. There's a, and, you know, you say there's only one other person doing this, so the bees aren't shaking in their boots right now. They have nothing to fear. Yeah, no, not not yet. So, Rico, I got to say, pretty yeah. impressive that you actually risked your life to taste mead. <laughs> Either that or it's kind of sad. Or kind of sad, agreed. Yeah. But uh, speaking <laughs> of insanity, 
There's a little food craze we also wanted to touch upon this week. Takis. Takis. That's right. You've no doubt seen the viral video in which a bunch of little kids rap about their favorite snack foods. That video now has almost a million and a half hits on YouTube. And this week, news outlets like Washington City Paper and even NPR were asking, what the heck are Takis? But not us. Not us, friends. Because back in 2009, we paid a visit to a fledgling news organization where we spoke to a young journalist who was, we now know, on the bleeding edge of food culture. Here's a clip. What is your name? Alana's Gradil. I'm 10 years old. And what do kids like eating today? Junk food like Takis, because they're really spicy, spicier than hot Cheetos now. What are what are Takis? Takis are these chips. They're like tortillas, but like burned. And they're hotter than Cheetos, so does your face explode when you eat them? Yeah, you have to drink a lot of water. Why, why do you want snacks that are hurt to eat? Because you know how kids are. They like really violent and they want to eat whatever. Alanis Gradillo speaking in 2009 from the journalism workshop at the after school writing program 826 LA. Their little newspaper, The Good Times, reported on the Takis trend years before any of us so called pros. We should be ashamed <laughs> and they should get a retroactive Pulitzer. <laughs> So our guest of honor this week is actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He is known for his work in films like 500 Days of Summer, Inception, and 50-50. Also for his role as Tommy Solomon in the television sitcom Third Rock from the Sun. This summer, he appears in The Dark Knight Rises and in the new film Premium Rush, where he plays a bike messenger getting chased around New York City by a dirty cop. Uh, Joe, there is so much bike riding in this movie. I feel like there's not a scene where you're not on a bike. It made me not only think about how much work bike messengers do, but how much work actors do. Can you, How intense was this shoot? <laughs> this was definitely the most physically challenging job I'd ever done. Even, even considering G.I. Joe and uh, Inception? Yeah, Inception is a close second, but Inception had scenes that weren't fighting, whereas Premium Rush is just on the bike the whole time. Even even conversations, you know, relationship conversations at the beginning of the movie where you're learning about, you know, the, the protagonist and his girlfriend, even that's on a bike. They're on. They're talking on the phone, both riding bikes in different parts of the city. There's no pillow talk, it's just bike talk. Well put, well put. So is that something you think about when you're deciding whether or not to take a role, the physical aspect of it and how intense it will be? Absolutely. In fact, uh, the first time I read the script for Premium Rush... I was in the middle of shooting 50-50, uh, where I'm playing a guy who's fighting cancer. I was in the middle of playing a guy whose body was giving up on him. And so the notion of playing a guy who's really healthy and confident in his body and getting fit and riding a bike around New York City all summer was very appealing. Well, 50-50 and this movie are very different. Uh, you're also in two very different movies coming up later this fall. Looper is a sci-fi film. And Lincoln, directed by Steven Spielberg, is a historical drama. These films are also different. Uh, what, what other factors besides the physical demands of the role do you consider when deciding whether or not to do a film? There's no system and there's no way to quantify it. But the first most important thing tends to be the filmmaker because films are a director's medium. And the truth is that any movie actor's performance is 
created just as much by the director as by the actor because all the timing is really dictated in the editing room more than on the day and the performance. So when you're gone, you have to trust them. You have to trust them. That's exactly right. You know, theater is where the actor has the control, but in a film, it's it's the director. And then the script, of course, is if I'm reading a script and it's getting me excited and it gets me on my feet and I'm inspired to start saying the words aloud. Um, so it's it's sort of intuitive that way. Are there any actors you hold up as role models? <laughs> Truthfully, I've I've been lucky enough to work with several of them recently. Um, Christian Bale and Gary Oldman, who are who are in The Dark Knight Rises, are are two of my favorite actors. And, you know, Christian did it ever since he was young, also. And uh, both of those guys are chameleons. Most of my favorite actors are the ones where you don't see the actor on screen; you see the character that they're playing, and they they're different every time, and they disappear. And then Daniel Day Lewis, who who played Lincoln, uh, is I mean he's he's just a phenomenon, sort of unique unto himself. Speaking of role models, you've talked about your parents in interviews before, um, and I, I've always wondered if actors who are close to their parents ever consider what their parents think when they're choosing a role. In your case, I know that your parents are politically progressive, and so I I wonder, did you ever not take a role because you thought, man, my mom would just kill me if I did that. <laughs> uh, no, I think my parents would support me with whatever I do. They're really supportive. You know, by the way, sorry, this is a tangent. My parents met working uh, at a public radio station. Well, you wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for public radio. You're absolutely right. Long live public radio. They, they, they met working at a KPFK, which is the Pacifica radio yeah. station in Los Angeles. Your mother's a political. Didn't she run for Congress at one point? She ran for Congress under the Peace and Freedom Party back in the, in the early 70s. Yep. And, um, I guess the closest I came to being concerned was when I did G.I. Joe, because my parents actually uh, didn't let me play with the G.I. Joe toys when I was when I was younger. They drew the lines at, at guns. I could have toys with swords, but not guns. So you were probably one of the first young male actors who was in a position to play soldier, and you're like, this is actually kind of new for me. This is a stretch. <laughs> well, by that point, I had played a soldier in a movie called Stop Loss. That was a, real, a very realistic movie about soldiers, whereas G.I. Joe isn't it's not really about soldiers. It's it's just a big fantasy, and I had a ball doing it. So my parents understood that. So you've been a professional actor since you were six. You've been in over 35 films. You've kind of grown up on a film set. And I wonder if any of the roles you performed kind of helped shape your identity in a way, you know? Well, ideally, every role does. And that's that's one of the coolest things about the art and the craft of, of being an actor is it, it really does inform your own identity and... and I like to think I take a little bit from every character I play and just the bit that I like or that I find applicable or whatever, you know, or, or it's almost like an arsenal. It's a tool bag if I need to handle any given situation. Sometimes I, I think I do draw on characters I've played and their strengths or virtues, or I'm able to be empathetic to other people because I played a character similar to them or things like that. All right. Well, we have two standard questions on our show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I don't love questions like about my personal life or my love life because I, I like to keep that separate because I would hope that when an audience is watching a movie that I'm in, they're not thinking about me and my life. They're thinking about the character. So whenever anyone asks me those kinds of questions, I always, I, I never know what to say. Well, I think some of that personal interest stems from your role in 500 Days of Summer, a hip romantic film that came out a couple years ago um, that kind of turned you into a heartthrob. 
among the Tumblr set. Well, I'd like to think that that folks on Tumblr like good movies and that I'm making good movies. I don't know. Maybe I'm kidding myself. But. I think, yeah, I think, I think that is the overlap. Um, our second standard question, which is actually a request, is tell us something we don't know, something you've never talked about in interviews before. It can be about you or the world at large. Well, here's one. Um, did you know that the spiral in a snail's shell is mathematically equivalent to the spiral in the Milky Way galaxy? I did not know that, and that's a real fact? That is a fact. It's a, it's a certain ratio. It's a number, an irrational number, not unlike pi, that, that uh, gets called phi or phi, or uh, people call it the golden ratio or things like that. Um, Euclid called it the uh, extreme and mean ratio, which has to do with how you derive it geometrically. Why does that fact right bobbing around your head? It's something I uh, first landed on from a poem. It's a French poem that the, the English translation of the title would be the song of snails on their way to the funeral of a fallen leaf. Chanson des escargots qui vont à l'enterrement. I think it's safe to say a portion of the NPR audience just swooned hearing you say that. <laughs> That's why I learned French was just to uh, impress girls. So, Rico, that poem sounds cute. Yeah. But since snails eat decaying vegetation, if a snail actually attended the funeral of a dead leaf, which I don't think a snail would do anyway, it would be going there to eat, you know, to eat the dead leaf. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a metaphor. Yeah, for guess. dining on a corpse. <laughs> well, you know, the French are big, morbid foodies. And on that note, we end the dinner party for this week, folks. Join us next week when we speak with Persepolis director Marjan Satrapi about her new film, Chicken with Plums. Which, incidentally, is also our nickname for Jackson Musker, the assistant producer of the dinner party. Thanks to our interns, Tamika Adams and James Kim. Thanks also to Ravi Carmen, Bill Lance, Peter Clowney, and a happy birthday to Peter Molnar. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Odd pop savant Ariel Pink and his band Haunted Graffiti have a new album out this week called Mature Themes. Mm. Here's a track from it called Only in My Dreams. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. What the? Do you hear that? Uh, guys? Yeah, Jackson? There's a ton of bees outside. Um. With really big wooden spoons. It has begun. <laughs>